Jane. Yep. That's right. Oh, we'll, we'll come on to this. What's your surname? Yep. K-O-S-U-T. Great. Thank you. Okay, good morning in Geelong, Warren Ponds campus, uh, the foundation campus of Deakin, uh, what many still consider the heartland, uh, even though Burwood has grown and we've got one in Warrnambool on a waterfront campus. Greetings to the cloud students who are, uh, will be listening to this recording and, and seeing what's on the computer screen, which you can see initially a word version of the uh, questions for this week's discussion. Um, I'll now switch the word view to the lecture notes and I'll go through the lecture over the next 50 minutes. Germany's policy achievements. Tony Jutt, author of a book we use each week, writes how in the post-war decades, although some young radicals in the 1960s saw West Germany, the Federal Republic, which was carved up as part of the post-Second World War settlement, as being hypocritical and self-satisfied and perhaps rather materialistic. Despite that, and despite the divisions within West Germany, particularly because it was on the front line of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and America, the city of West Berlin was surrounded by Soviet-controlled East Germany, and the city itself from 1961 was divided by the Berlin Wall, uh, which was built to stop the victims of communism in East Berlin from escaping to freedom in the West. Um, those conditions also led to Berlin itself as a city, West Berlin as it was, harbouring a strong anti-nuclear peace movement uh, and early green activists. And one of the consequences of that was that a Social Democratic Party Chancellor, Helmut Schmidt, was forced to step down in 1982 after the left wing of his own party voted against further missiles being positioned for NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, the US and Western European allies, aimed at the Soviet Union. Tense times, um, but despite that, West Germany is often described in the decades following the Second World War as an economic miracle. And one of the things that characterised that was the export of manufactured goods, which helped Europe as a whole go ahead economically. In the 1950s, Germany was already attracting international respect for the quality of its manufactured goods. Its exports rose to, from 7% to 19% in 10 years from 1950. And as he writes, by the mid-1960s, anything that was turned on a German lathe, metalwork, or conceived by German-speaking engineers could walk out of a British or American showroom at a price of its own asking. So a strong reputation for quality engineering and exports. And more recently, um, that characteristic of the German economy helped Europe and the world recover from, the developed world recover from the global financial crisis in the early 21st century. A high-skilled, coordinated and diverse economy which still has a strong real-world economy, bricks and mortar, manufacturing and so on, isn't just a casino of a stock market. Uh, and is less reliant on risky financial speculations as America, and to some extent England, the City of London, is too. We mentioned last week, I think, examples of German-engineered products, BMW cars, Mercedes and Audis, uh, and the fact that 
Donald Trump was puzzled when he walked along New York City's Fifth Avenue as to why so many Americans were buying Mercedes rather than cars made in America. Uh, part of the problem is that not many cars made in America anymore, or Australia for that matter, um, because we are not social market economies. We are liberal market economies. Social market economies take into account things like the need to have diversity in the economy, uh, coordination, regulation, uh, an active role for government, whereas many pure free market liberal economists say that is bad, that is government trying to pick winners and distorting the purity, the beautiful purity of the free market, uh, and they don't like it. Automotive manufacturing companies in Germany have also led the way in clean, and you like the way I've used the green highlight here, third degree, but you know, sort of psychological colour coordination. Um, this came to me on the train this morning. Um, so, green innovations competing internationally on a basis of quality products, niche, not trying to push wages down, but valuing skills. That's not to say Germany's been perfect in this respect, it's not. Um, there, there was, in fact, a scandal involving the Volkswagen company a few years ago, uh, uh, faking and, and fraudulently exaggerating its green credentials, uh, corporate fraud. So, I'm not saying Germany's perfect or it's free from. Um, the, the potential for dishonesty and corruption that can occur in any, any society or economy, although it was caught out at least. Um, Volkswagen was for that. Um, how did Germany get to this position of becoming an economic powerhouse in Europe, which it still retains? Partly because after the Second World War, having lost the war, having started the war, and started the one before that too, having started two world wars and lost both of them, it was probably time for some reassessment in Germany about what their next steps would be. Uh, and the desire to gain consensus as a country rather than conflict shaped the whole public culture of what is called the Bonn Republic because the capital of West Germany was Bonn, not West Berlin, um, partly because Berlin had been the centre of Hitler's uh, Nazi Germany aggressions. At that time, Bonn was the capital so the social market approach sought to reduce conflicts between workers and employers. Co-determination law in 1951 brought employees into participation in management. The federal government and the lander, state governments, Germany is a federal system like Australia, were active in the economy. The Christian Democratic Party is a conservative party. This is the same party that Angela Merkel still leads at the moment. We'll be talking about her later. Christian Democratic Party is a conservative party, but it's, it's not the same kind of conservative party as the Liberal Party of Australia or the Conservative Party of Britain. It seems to have less objection to the role of the state in the economy. It's less of a free market party. Uh, so the state has a big role in economic production, electricity, coal and iron, aluminium and banks, not hands-off government. And one of the ironies, uh, of course, of the Second World War is that Britain was the country that fought Nazi Germany from the beginning and prevailed and did so very heroically. Uh, and yet, although Britain won the war, Germany in many ways won the peace afterwards. That Germany prospered and Britain has often been seen as being in decline since then. Although that's a matter for debate and we'll be talking about Britain next week. One of the relevant policy achievements of Germany since the Second World War has been a strong system of vocational skills training. 
valuing a wide range of technical trade skills, paying attention to the skills of the workforce, not just when there's a, an immediate shortage, which in Australia we can often and frequently do, fill a skill shortage by importing temporarily people uh, under skilled migration visas to carry out that work, rather planning ahead to prevent skill shortages and training young people as apprentices and other workers to gain the skills so that there won't be skill shortages. Planning ahead, quality skills training, emphasis on apprenticeships and arguing that universities are not the only ways to succeed. University education is suitable for all of you, I think. It's been suitable for me. Um, it's, it's appropriate for academic inclined people to go into certain occupations. But there are other people who are more suited to go into other types of occupations, like carpenters, electricians, engineers and so on, who may benefit from more vocational skills training. The sort of things that are, have been taught in the TAFE system in Australia, technical and further education, but which have been arguably very undermined and privatised. And Will Hutton, a British economist, was highlighting when he wrote here that 80% of school leavers in Germany receive either vocational training or a tertiary degree, a university degree, all except 1% of school leavers in Germany receive formal post-secondary educational training. In America, 46% of school leavers gain no certificate or degree and 31% receive no formal training or education after school. So yes, some, some, a minority of American school leavers get into college, university, and some of those are very prestigious. But those who miss out, miss out in a big way. Hutton also talks about the integration between vocational training and uh, companies. Uh, with apprenticeships and there's not the same social stigma um, for pursuing a vocational trade as there is in Britain and the same could be said for Australia. There's something about, I think about English speaking countries, the idea if you get your hands dirty at work then you've, you are a lower class person um, and I think that's a problem uh, it, for many reasons including for economic reasons. Germany still faces many issues. One of those is an ageing population um, and that is something that's been debated with the decision in recent years by Chancellor Merkel to take in a large number of asylum seekers. One of the arguments put for that was that it would help, because many of them were young, that would help uh, reduce the ageing of the German population. Germany hasn't been blessed with natural resources like Australia is, or in terms of oil and so on. So it needs to invest in the skills of its workforce. It has a dual system which is related to vocational vis-a-vis -vis academic. Uh, that's not to say it's necessarily always equitable. There is not enough tendency for children of tradespeople to have the opportunity to go to university if they're suited. There's evidence to that effect. But there are many positives in the German vocational vis-a-vis -vis academic learning story. There's some figures there. School to work transition, knowledge intensive industries. Doesn't mean we can, we can suddenly look at Germany, go over there, come back, assuming COVID's finished and we can travel, and transplant it. Doesn't work like that, but you can learn things from other countries. We, you can learn from, adapt, and apply things from other countries, and many have been interested in, in German approaches over the years, and, and I think we'll see that continue. 
we'll be interested to talk in, in the seminars, uh, both online and on campus, about your own perceptions and experiences of how vocational programs are perceived vis-a-vis universities from your own experiences. Uh, and whether you see um, and have seen in schools, classrooms, some young people there who don't respond well to that type of learning, who might, who might nevertheless have intelligence and abilities in certain areas which could be harnessed in other ways. Um, the Council of Australian National Governments, now the National Cabinet since COVID, because the state and federal governments have all agreed in the communique, the link is here in the notes, that we should now have a once in a generation review of post-school education and put universities and TAFE on an equal footing. Stop emphasising only universities, rebuild public TAFEs, take out the fraudulent, uh, rotting scam providers that have flourished in the system in recent years and bring back balance and, and choice there. If they're going to do that effectively, I think they'll need to look at Germany and other parts of Northern Europe. <clears throat> Deakin University is an applied um, research university. There are examples of this university on this campus, a recent announcement by the Vice-Chancellor, a doubling of our manufacturing hub. We, we do have links here, but many Australian universities don't. And, and, and overall, Australian universities don't have the same degree of collaboration um, between researchers and industry. Now, I mentioned that it's a Christian Democratic Party, the Conservative Party, um, so it's not the same as Social Democratic. Social Democratic, Germany does have a Social Democratic Party. I mentioned Helmut Schmidt was Chancellor in the early 80s, before him, Willy Brandt, more recently, Gerhard Schroeder, um, but the Social Democratic Party is not very strong in Germany now. But the Christian Democratic Party not only is more less free market liberal than conservative parties in Australia and Britain, it is also uh, more supportive of, of substantial welfare provision. It doesn't do so from quite the same social democratic political framework uh, as the Nordic countries, but it still does provide substantial welfare. From, from the point of view of conservatives who think it's important to have a society, not just an economy, that individuals need to be looked after. Perhaps that, that strand of Christianity that is, is concerned about social justice and so on. Uh, even though there's social, conservative in, social conservatism in amongst that, patriarchal notions, i.e. still the tendency to think that um, women should be the main carers for children. And we've heard a lot about patriarchy and gender inequality in recent days with the major rallies, and we'll be talking about those more today and in future weeks, including when we do the, talk about the Nordic countries. Environmentalism. <coughs> Here come the green highlights again. So, Germany introduced a carbon tax in 1999. Now, most of you will be fairly young when Australia had its big carbon tax debate back in 2010. You remember Prime Minister Julia Gillard? You remember a time of turmoil? There was rallies then that uh, Liberal Party leaders were prepared to go down to, and no one got shot at those either. Um, uh, uh, saying terrible things about Julia Gillard and Bob Brown uh, against the carbon tax. And, and you, could, you could be forgiven for thinking during that that Australia was you know, the only country in the world that was considering putting a price on carbon, the way that the, the carry-on, the opposition to it. It was, it was hard in all that noise to hear rational arguments that other countries might already have done it. And Germany had done it more than 10 years earlier, 1999. And other countries had done it much earlier than that. Um, 
and it's not as if Germany's a, a small backwater. If Germany, a manufacturing powerhouse, producing all these cars that emit carbon dioxide, can somehow manage politically to, to bring the stakeholders together and to work out a plan where you reduce carbon without killing the economy, then surely it's possible. Germany is not a particularly sunny place. I mean, Australia's got this beautiful natural sunlight. Today is a nice day. Um, and yet Germany, for a long time, was the world leader in solar power production because it saw it as an industrial opportunity. Uh, China has caught up now, and Australia is, is starting to do solar power uh, much more. But interestingly, partly because of that uh, situation I mentioned earlier about West Berlin being on the front line of the, the Cold War, uh, the Greens political party rose significantly in Germany before most countries and it pushed both the conservative Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats to develop a green welfare state and in some ways um, that, that challenge was heightened when Germany reunified after 1990 the Berlin Wall came down to much joy and celebration uh, Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, uh, so Helmut Kohl, the uh, Christian Democrat Chancellor of the time, presided over the reunification of the former West and East Germany. Uh, and one of the first things that became evident when, when East Germany was opened up was it had an appalling wreck on the environment. Heavily polluting country, a lot of work to do. The German Greens Party um, became important in the German Parliament, so important in fact that when Gerhard Schroeder was the Social Democratic Chancellor, his foreign minister was the leader of the Greens Party, Joschka Fischer. So that would be like in Australia if Albanese was Prime Minister, Adam Bant, the leader of the Greens, would be the foreign minister. That's a pretty good radical concept, isn't it, in our system. Um, and the connections go further than that because in the 1980s, Petra Kelly, who was a, a, one of the driving forces in the founding of the German Greens, came to Australia, met with Bob Brown, who was then leading the Tasmanian Wilderness Society and having recently helped stop the Franklin Dam being built, the Franklin River being dammed, and, and persuaded him to enter national politics and build a national Greens Party. So Germany's Greens Party and the approach it took, including on climate change, very specifically influenced the Australian Greens Party. The Productivity Commission reading, um, which you've been asked to look at, is from 2011, which was the period when the Gillard government was bringing in a carbon tax, having one office very narrowly, and despite Prime Minister Gillard in 2010 during the election saying there will be no carbon tax because it needed the support of the Greens in the House of Representatives to govern, its minority government, signed an agreement with the Greens that it would bring in a carbon tax. Of course, for that, Gillard was attacked as a liar and um, scare campaigns included the carbon tax did come in and it was, and it was there for a couple of years. Uh, apparently, a roast lamb was going to, the price was going to hit $100, a leg of lamb. Well, I, I, I'm quite a fan of Sunday roast. I've never paid that much, even under the carbon tax period. So there's a lot of alarmism. Germany, in 1999, had a carbon tax, as I said. Finland was actually the first country in 1990. Uh, and other Nordic countries followed in the early 1990s. And this has helped reduce pollution. But then, even more recently, this is, one of the, this is quite an astounding thing, when, when we... When we look at where we are in Australian politics, where, you know, if you go around the inner city of Melbourne, you'll see lots of... In every cafe, there'll be a stop at Arnie. Uh, post a sticker. The Greens Party hold the inner, inner 
Melbourne seat and the state seats of Brunswick and so on. But if you go to Queensland, people who oppose the, the Adani proposed new coal mine are seen as enemies of local jobs and possibly Labor under Bill Shorten lost the election in Queensland because it didn't talk enough about what would happen to people who feared that they would not get jobs if the coal mine didn't proceed. When you compare that situation to Germany, which had a strong coal industry, has managed to close or has nearly fully closed its coal industry without sacking a single mine. Now, how could that possibly happen? Well, the answer is simply that through the stakeholder cooperative system, social market economy, people sat around and talked and they realised it would be cheaper to pay out coal miners in their 50s, give them early retirement, give them enough as if they had continued working for another 7 or 8, 10 years, than it would be to pay the costs of the damage to the environment done by continuing coal mining and emissions. Pretty rational, isn't it? Pretty um, the sort of policy that you'd hope uh, could be achieved. <clears throat> and Germany's climate action policies are embedded in complex laws and decisions in the EU. Uh, they, they seem to be able to manage at the national level being part of the EU, but perhaps Britain argues that Germany is too dominant in the EU. Um, and Britain, however, despite its decision to leave the European Union, isn't having the same polarising debate on climate change we are in Australia. Not every English-speaking country is. Um, the British Conservative Party, including Boris Johnson, recognise the science of climate change and have, there's been a fair bit of bipartisan support towards setting targets for, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in Britain. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as the new President and Vice President of the United States, one of the first things they've done is to bring the US back into the discussions for the Paris Agreement. So Australia is actually a real isolated country on this matter now. Um, a coal commission was created back in 2018, bringing parties together. A roadmap was planned to close the 84 remaining coal-fired power plants and uh, the relevant legislation was passed. Renewable energy continues to be boosted. Um, in 2019, 46% of energy was from renewables, electricity. By 2050, it should be 80% on current plants. So these are significant achievements, I think. Another important issue and mostly an achievement is Germany's management of ethno-religious diversity. Germany, back in the 1970s, was seen as being somewhat exploitative of guest, so-called guest workers by bringing people in for short term from other parts of Europe, often to countries where there was a high unemployment like Italy, um, and then sending them back, not, not granting them citizenship. But things have changed a lot in Germany. And Australia and America, although they are both more multicultural countries than, than Germany and have been for many decades, in the, in the last couple of decades, Australia and Germany, Germany have been going in opposite directions. Uh, as Oskul and Castles write, Germany has had more than 20 million immigrants since 1945 one of the biggest population movements to any country ever. Australia has also had massive immigration relative to what was a small population. Australia uh, perhaps had a better approach to multiculturalism for some of that time because at the guest worker period, ethnic minorities were not always seen as a legitimate part of the German nation. But since the mid-1990s, they argue, and these are world-leading experts, Oscar and Castles and 
give their full reference in a moment. Since the mid-1990s, something has changed in both countries. The Howard government from 1996 adopted hostile uh, positions towards asylum seekers by both the Tampa incident in early 2001. Multiculturalism has been downplayed. Australia's traditional open attitude towards refugees, accepting them on the basis of family reunion and so on, has become narrower. Uh, and on the other hand, Germany has moved towards a more open immigration policy, a more inclusive approach to integration. And this woman, Chancellor Angela Merkel, went against her own Conservative Party's traditions to say we can do it, to say we can resettle large numbers of refugees and asylum seekers travelling to Europe. And that phrase came to define her chancellorship, making her the only prominent European leader to extended welcoming arms to refugees who are coming from Syria and other places. Sweden also did so, but Merkel, the most prominent leader and the biggest country to do so. It, it wasn't without controversy. There's been a backlash. There is an anti-immigrant sentiment in Germany. There is a far-right nationalist party, the Alternative for Deutschland, AFD, which has gained support. It was founded as a Eurosceptic party. Eurosceptic meaning not that keen on the European Union, like the uh, UK Independence Party of Nigel Farage. Um, but arguably it's moved further to the right, including towards the fascistic right. Of course, any move towards fascistic policies in Germany is alarming. Very inflammatory rhetoric. So that, that is the situation in Germany. <coughs> 2010 marked uh, 20 years after reunification and the New York Times wrote an article then that uh, Germany was now celebrating its reawakening, its, its long positive history and the, what he called the unsullied stretches of its history. The sullied stretch, of course, was of course Hitler and the Nazi period. Now in the biography of Angela Merkel that uh, you've been asked to read, the biographer suggests that she personifies an older Germany with its great philosophical thinkers, the embodiment of the country as it was before it became perverted um, by ideas of greatness and national chauvinism. And it's generally agreed that Germany did engage after World War II in a very definite attempt at a denazification program. It had to, of course. It was, it was the, the place that Nazism spread from. Hitler was born in Austria, but he considered himself part of the pan-German um, race, the Third Reich and all of that. Uh, but also the very first action of reunified Germany, the first action when East and West came back together of the new parliament was to issue an apology to the State of Israel for the treatment of the Jewish people. That was a pretty clear statement of how much modern Germany repudiates the Nazi past. Some of the people who helped build post-war Germany were Germans who were anti-Nazis. Willy Brandt fled Hitler and helped organise an opposition, came back and became mayor of West Berlin and then became Chancellor in the late 1960s. Um, and he was a very highly regarded uh, German Chancellor, uh, including because he tried to open up relations with East Germany, which sowed the seeds for 
eventual reunification. Ostopolic was the name of the, uh, the policy, the foreign policy that Brandt pursued. He was a social democrat, but when reunification began happening seriously, Brandt, Willy Brandt, Billy Brandt had left the scene, but Councillor Helmut Kohl from the Christian Democratic Party was in charge, and the social democrats were ambivalent on the subject of reunification. Um, and they didn't seize the moment. I think if Billy Brandt still had been Chancellor, he would have seized the moment, but he didn't. Chancellor Cole seized the moment. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and the unravelling of the uh, tyrannical East German state, which is one of the worst of the Soviet bloc communist countries, um, uh, Cole ensured that reunification happened, which I think was a good and correct decision. But of course, this was, a, this was a big challenge for a rich West Germany to take on this poor East Germany and help cross-subsidise it to join their prosperity and overcome those environmental problems and so on. Um, and there, it wasn't all one way. I mean, I'm not, I think most East Germans were very happy to get out of the old East Germany. But they did lose some things too. Um, some of them, uh, older East Germans, particularly complained they had lost some of the material security, housing and employment that they had enjoyed previously in the, in the upheavals of reunification. Um, but that didn't mean they wanted to return to the oppression of communism. There was a film in 2003 called Goodbye Lenin, which is based on the premise that an elderly woman who's grown up in East Germany falls asleep, wakes up after reunification and her family try to explain to her what's happened and she's not taking it terribly well and they try and tell her in, 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 in uh, ways that won't upset her. There was a partial nostalgia um, in some parts for uh, pre-reunification Germany, partly because unemployment in the East was much higher than the West. That was back in the early 2000s. We'll have some more up-to-date figures coming up shortly. But Chancellor Kohl and others helped lead Germany through that and um, Berlin was reunified and Berlin is a major city in Europe. Uh, Germany is the undisputed centre of Europe despite the problems of reunification and Germany was the, is the only country in Europe that straddles, that straddles the former Cold War divide. There are former Soviet countries, Soviet bloc countries like Hungary and Poland in Europe and in the EU, but neither of them had both a Western and an Eastern European legacy from the post-World War II decades. Berlin is now six times the area of Paris, and some say that's a symbol of how the two leading countries in the formation of the European Union, Germany and France, have evolved. France has lost its um, preeminent position. Germany dominates the European economy and are committed European citizens, but maybe that's partly because the European Union suits Germany quite well, partly because they, they're the dominant force in it. And one of the criticisms of Germany's attitude, for example, towards Greece, is that the European currency is better for German econ Germany's economy than it is for the Greek economy. It's, it's well suited to an exporting, manufacturing-based economy like Germany, but maybe the same currency doesn't work as well for Greece, maybe doesn't work as well for Italy either. These are questions um, which we'll continue to look at. And, you know, some would say, and some Greeks say, 
that Germany is not acting in the same spirit towards it, towards Greece and other countries as the world acted towards Germany after World War II. That is being gracious and uh, helping rebuild from poverty and so on rather than being self-interested. Merkel is still popular in many parts of Europe but her finance minister for much of her term of office was the one who was copying the uh, criticism of, of from Greece, but she worked hard to ensure Greece did not leave the European Union during all those currency crises. Germany can never forget the Second World War, but it has rebuilt very well since then. If you're interested in following further the population growth trends in post-war Germany, including the, the multiculturalisation of post-war Germany, then you can look at that link. And I encourage you to do that and for other statistics that might be relevant for our discussions uh, and for your, whichever you choose to do for your main assignment. One of the arguments there by a British journalist writing in The Guardian, which is a left of centre newspaper, um, what was good for Germany in 1953 is good for Greece in 2015. A, a Keynesian economist arguing that Germany needed to show that kind of um, magnanimity uh, to others that was shown to it after the Second World War. So if we go back to the picture of Angela Merkel, and it's, it's quite a good picture of her, and what do the six or seven, this could be a good opt- 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 optometry test, but are there six or seven yellow circles there? Class? Seven. Seven, correct. Everyone see seven? Um, yeah, if I could, I'd, I'd cover one of your eyes and then say, is it better or worse? No, I won't do that. Um, what do they represent? What does that backdrop represent behind Merkel? The EU. The EU, the EU flag is slightly blurred, actually. But yes, and many would say it's an appropriate picture because she is seen as the leader of the EU and, as I suggested last week, last week has been seen by many as the leader of the free world. But Angela Merkel, although she's been Chancellor for 18 years, is leaving. It had to happen sometime. Um, and a crucial question for Germany now is can it adapt to a new leader after her long term as Chancellor. There's a grand coalition in Germany. That's what Merkel has led. A grand coalition means the two major parties uh, are in a coalition. So it's not like uh, Labour with the Greens in Australia. It's like Labour and Liberal being in one big coalition. It's happened before in Germany. Um, so the Social Democrats are in the coalition, but the party system has been changing and fragmenting in Germany. We've already mentioned the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland and its anti-immigrant sentiments. The CDU, the Christian Democratic Party, is still the biggest party. But the Greens have now risen to be on an almost equal footing to the CDU and are larger than the Social Democrats. So if we go to the, the detail of that footnote number 17 there, which I won't do because it'll give away what I'm going to do at the ending. Hang on. Um, I'll just see if I can insert a break there. Um, get away with it. All right. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Can you see that footnote all right? Can you read it in the back row? Better or worse if I do that? Sorry. Um, a recent poll put the CDU at 27%, the Greens at 26%, the Social Democrats at only 14%, the AFD at 13%, 
the FDP, which is the Free Democrats, the smaller, uh, smaller liberal, economically liberal party, which has been for a long time fluctuated. And there's a left party at 7%. So Germany's got a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 party system. It traditionally had a three party system. <coughs> the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, the big ones, the Free Democrats, um, flucked, you know, flitted between them to form coalitions. The Greens rose, as we've said, uh, in the 80s and since. But now the Greens are bigger than the Social Democrats and they're almost as big as the Christian Democrats. So this is a very interesting situation. So the, after the next election with Merkel's successor, the logical thing that will happen is that will be a grand coalition between the, the Christian Democrats and the Greens. So it's a Conservative Party and a Greens Party. Unless, I mean, the arithmetic is there, that's 53%. If you add those two up, if that's how the election falls in October or September, um, <clears throat> theoretically the Social Democrats and the far-right racists and the free market liberals and the left could cobble together a coalition, but I don't think that would last very long, personally. Um, stranger things happen, though, in politics. Um, uh, so there's, there's a lot of talk about uh, the shape of the next German government if it will be a grand coalition again it won't be the same grand coalition because it won't be Christian Democrats and Social Democrats or Liberal and Labor it will be perhaps more likely Christian Democrats and Greens <clears throat> and how are some of the more right wing conservative members of the Christian Democrats some of whom are all, have already been alarmed by the way Merkel embraced taking a million asylum seekers from Syria. Um, perhaps some of them have been alarmed at the continuing role of the state in the economy, the phasing out of coal, the phasing out of nuclear power, uh, and so on. The, the, the amount paid to those retired coal workers, I mean, you get a lot of argument against doing something like that from our Treasury Department in Canberra. Um, and from business saying you're not going to pay workers to, you know, who are leaving their jobs to look after them for the rest of their lives. No, thank you. No, we can't afford that. <coughs> um, what will happen next? Well, the first problem for Germany will be that uh, it will be hard to replace Angela Merkel. And there's a quote coming up. Yeah, Carol Lanou, Chief Executive of the Centre for European Policy Studies, suggests that Germans and Europeans won't really know what they had in Merkel until she's gone. A, a very inclusive politician, a natural seeker of consensus, who also has the intellect to, to achieve that consensus and, and the determination uh, to, to bring it about. And there's been a long debate about who will succeed her. Um, her initial choice was also a woman, but that individual dropped out of the race. There's been a contest between a number of men and the person now who is, has won that contest and will be the new leader of the, the CDU, it's happened in the last couple of months, <coughs> so he will be their candidate for Chancellor unless something unexpected happens. Um, Armin Lachette, that's a picture of him. I deliberately made that picture of him somewhat smaller than Angela Merkel. So I think that's just yeah, putting them in proportion so far. We'll give him a go. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how he goes. But you know, if he becomes as, as large and significant as Angela Merkel, then next year I'll put a bigger picture of him. If he can achieve some of the things she has, you know, credit where credit's due. A continuity candidate who's talked about broadening the party's appeal to women, young people and the migrant community. Merkel has said 
that he has the tools to be Chancellor. I'm not, I wonder if that's damning with faint praise. Um, uh, I think she's trying to endorse her successor. Um, the CDU, like many incumbent governments, and we've just seen that in Australia with the Western Australian election, the Labor Premier in Western Australia, the Labor Party has won with some ridiculously high proportion of the vote um, in a traditionally rather conservative state. This is an example of times of crisis, including the pandemic, incumbent leaders, as long as they don't stuff it up, usually get support um, because people rally behind uh, the flag, rally behind an incumbent leader at a time of crisis um, and they don't want further instability. So the support, support for the CDU is up since the pandemic, even though Germany's, Germany's death toll has increased. As we saw last week, it's not as high as many European countries, but it's, it's been hit a, a fair bit. And the suggestion there is that the CDU will govern again. Lachette will probably be the Chancellor. The Greens may be part of the coalition. And then we might see some very interesting uh, discussions. Obviously, the Greens will try to get the strongest possible environmental policy commitments as being part of the coalition. Um, and in exchange for that, they'll drive a hard bargain uh, with the Conservatives, the Christian Democrats, um, about other things. Okay. Now, we talked about in, in 2010, um, Germany celebrated 20 years of reunification. Last year, it was 2020, so therefore, Germany celebrated 30 years of reunification. If we ever come back here together, this exact group in this room, in nine years' time, Germany, Germany will probably be celebrating 40 years of reunification. What, where did reunification stand in 2020, however, after 30 years of reunification? There's still gaps. 6.5% typo there. I'm going to edit that in real time here. 6.5% uh, unemployment rate in the former East, 48 in the former West Germany. But that's a much smaller difference than we saw earlier. Soon after reunification, it was more like four times the unemployment rate in East Germany and West Germany, those are relatively minor differences. The economic power of East Germany has risen from 43% to 75% of the Western level. So it's still only three quarters of the economic power of the West, but it, that's a lot more than less than half. Wages, salaries and disposable income in the East have reached about 85% at the level in the West. And the reference there, I won't go to the footnote here, but you can look it up is from uh, a regular website monitoring German reunification. Interestingly, using the term closing the gap, too, we use that term very, something very different in Australia to close the gap between Indigenous people and uh, non-Indigenous people. And we do have regular reports on that now since the apology to stolen generations. OK, so Angela Merkel will be a hard act to follow. I think that's fair to say. I'm an admirer, as you've probably gathered. Um, and I, I, politics never ceases to surprise me, you know, um, even though I've been, you know, interested in it for 40 years and I've been, you know, teaching and researching it professionally for 22 years. And then, you know, someone, if someone had to come up to me and said the, the leader of the Conservative Party in Germany is, he's a Conservative, right? And she's taking a million asylum seekers, she's phasing out nuclear power um, and she's keeping the manufacturing industry going and... Um, 
he's closing down the coal mining industry for environmental reasons without sacking a single worker. I said, well, if that's conservatism, then I'm signing up. You know, I'll be, I'll be, like, I'll be a reactionary if that's conservatism. You know, that doesn't sound like John Howard, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, or Scott Morrison, frankly. It certainly not like Peter Dutton. Um, so, this is interesting. I find it interesting. He's admired widely, not just by me. Um, she was given by grateful colleagues for her farewell gift the baton used by the conductor of an orchestra which performed Beethoven, the famous German composer, Beethoven's famous Ninth Symphony at one of the international meetings which she hosted as German Chancellor. It was a couple of years ago, that event, and she personally chose that composition to be played. She's a lover of music. And that symphony, you may have heard it before, you may recognise it, we're about to hear some of it. It ended, as it always does, dramatically and triumphantly, as we shall now see and hear. This is the actual performance by the, uh, the Philharmonic Orchestra in Hamburg, in Germany, a magnificent new concert hall there. Um, and there's a photographic cross to Merkel watching the orchestra play. It's a meeting of the G20. She closes her eyes briefly. She may have been tired, but I think she was closing it as a mu- closing her eyes as a music aficionado, savouring the final notes that were coming up. The symphony goes for an hour and ten minutes, so we won't hear all of it. We will hear the last couple of minutes now, and I'm going to go to this website for that purpose. Sound. Where is sound? The baton, the very baton, which is slightly out of focus there, used to bring the orchestra to its remarkable culmination there, has been presented to Angela Merkel in appreciation of her own efforts as a political leader. And I leave us with the thought that one of the first tasks of Merkel's successor, they won't get the baton, 
I'd like to repeat that, but will be to ensure that the remarkable harmony she, she accomplished in a very complex, turbulent, drama-filled modern world uh, can be continued. Thank you. That's the end of the lecture. Pause.